Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. We're actually getting ready to start here. And uh, what I want to ask you to ponder is the question, why is it that you know God? How is it that you have come to know God? Surely you have friends. I, I hope you all have friends that aren't believers. They don't know God. They don't claim to know God. They either are ignorant of his uh, existence. And what I mean by that, they just pretend like he doesn't exist. Romans 1. Or they've, they have made that, that rejection choice that we talked about. In other words, where they said, I've looked at the evidence and I've decided I don't want any part of God. So you have friends that are like that. So my question to you is, why? Why us? How is it that we have come to know God? And you don't need to answer. This is just sort of a rhetorical question to hang that we are going to be answering over the next two weeks. Um, Now, before we jump into uh, this morning's lesson, let's take time to sort of clarify any misconceptions, questions, those kinds of things that maybe have anything that's come up over over time. that maybe you want to talk about before we jump into to today's because we're kind of we're kind of pivoting a little bit if you will um we're looking at at some of the more um hidden attributes of god now those things that aren't aren't so much front and center so any questions comments those kinds of things i did spend a lot of time this week thinking about our conversation our the wrath of God and uh, try and wrap my head around that into how I would explain it to somebody else because that does tend to be a stumbling block for Mm -hmm. many people Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I mean God's wrath being poured out on people that can be a stumbling block because their mindset is that God is supposed to be a loving God and Mm -hmm. if God is such a loving God, then how could all of these horrible things happen? But they're they're missing. I know there's a disconnect mm-hmm. there between their understanding of what causes a lot. I mean, their mm-hmm. understanding that sin brought about a lot of the negativity mm-hmm. in our world. Mm-hmm. But we still have to acknowledge the fact that God has the right and the capability to... Mm-hmm. So what? How what? How would you explain that to somebody? Put you on the spot. I I don't know how I would explain it to some. I haven't come to that conclusion yet. I haven't worked through that. But one thing that has come out in my thinking is another a a reference that is keeps coming back. Is you know in the scriptures it says many times. I mean, and God tells us He's a jealous Mm -hmm. God, Mm -hmm. and I think that that. To me, that ties into that wrath as mm-hmm. well. I mean, that helps, you know, when you get to looking in at the wrath of God. Well, he's told us himself that he's a jealous God. Mm-hmm. And when we think of jealousy, we think of that as being a negative characteristic or quality, too. But obviously, I mean, when where God is concerned, it can't, his is not a sinful mm-hmm. 
jealousy, where mm -hmm. ours would be, I mean, in human form. So if we accept the fact that God says that he's a jealous God, then we also have to accept the fact that he could be a wrathful God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But our concept of wrath and jealousy, our human concept mm -hmm. of wrath and jealousy has such a negative connotation as anger and hatred mm -hmm. attached to mm -hmm. it. And it's very difficult for me to attach anger and hatred to God. Right, right. And so that's... So we humanize, we tend to humanize we, him. We humanize, <clears throat> I do think we humanize, mm -hmm. and of course he is so far above us mm -hmm. in our thinking, his thoughts are higher than ours. And I think that's where I'm stuck right now mm -hmm. in trying to figure out how would I have a conversation about this with a non-believer. I think I could have a conversation with a believer mm -hmm. and work through this because we do understand the nature of God. Mm -hmm. But having a conversation with someone who's not a believer, I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, that would be a difficult thing for me. And that's, that's something that I know I tend to avoid mm -hmm. those types of conversations with non-believers because... I just take it in faith. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. take it in faith and trust that God has my best, but that's not how a non-believer sees it. And right. so I really do struggle with how do I communicate with a non-believer about what seems to be the negative mm -hmm. aspects of God in a light that shows that it really is out of a deep love for us that those characteristics and qualities mm -hmm. exist mm -hmm. in him. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the real challenge. And I hope that your takeaway from that discussion is that's why creation matters. Because if you, if you only look at life as it is now, in other words, where we are in creation, it, it is here, this is our home place. If you divorce from that the fact that God created all of this and he created it with a purpose then really you can't justify god being angry or being wrathful right it's only when you see him as the creator the great i am the self-existent one who created us with purpose and then we violated the purpose that is the only way that you can get to that place where you say he does have the right to be upset to be ticked off <clears throat> You know, we want to confuse things and attribute something to God that that is just a natural consequence. 
don't recognize what is his judgment, his wrath. Well, it, I think it was in Kathy has a tendency to pick out uh, just real winter movies on Netflix, and so uh, was that Friday night we watched that. <laughs> And the the name of the movie was I I dated a church girl and it was actually a pretty good movie that I will say I mean the storyline however it was a little hokey at times it's about a former drug dealer gang member who comes to faith in Christ because of this girl that he meets through a mutual friend anyways at some point in the movie I think. He talks about, I think I'm getting this right, you know, how can you believe in a God that allows babies to die and hurricanes to come and tornadoes and all these things? But he talks about these uh, resultant type things that grow out of this abandonment that we talked about. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you go back to that Romans passage and you keep reading, you'll see that in some cases we experience in our own selves the result of this abandonment, uh, where Paul says they received in their own bodies the due penalty for their choices. Now, what about creation? Well, if you keep reading, you get to Romans chapter 8, where Paul says the creation has been subjected to frustration. So, did God design the world to have hurricanes, tsunamis, um, all of these things. No, he didn't. It is when we realize that his creation is struggling with sin just as much as in the effects of sin, and it's waiting to be liberated. That's what Paul says. It's looking eagerly. It's expectant. A tree. Think of a tree. A tree is waiting to be liberated. That That is an amazing concept to me. That grass, that, that animals... And then we read about what life in the kingdom is going to be like in some of the prophets. The lion will lie down with the lamb. Think of that. We can't imagine that right now. But all of these things will be brought to perfection once that happens. So, again, my point in bringing this up is if you divorce creation from a life with God, you miss the point. Okay? And in a lot of cases, that is where Christianity has gone wrong. Modern Christianity especially. If you look at historic Christianity, that was not... I mentioned this when we started. Part of the Apostles' Creed was, I believe in Almighty God, the maker of heaven and earth. That that was as much a part of what you're expected to believe as Jesus dying on the cross. But in today's society, we divorce that. And therefore, we sort of try and defang... The, 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 if you remember, I used that illustration last week from uh, Rudolph. We try and defang the abominable snowman and make him into something that we can handle. And you can't do that with God because he is not like us. Okay? So if you take anything from that discussion, just remember the point of it, because it is a very complex, difficult thing to think about, that sitting at the center of that discussion is the issue of where did I come from? Why am I here? And do I have purpose? Because if you can't answer those three questions, you can't answer any kind of question about eternal destiny, right? You have to understand why we're here. Okay, so we move on to uh, Colossians, in which we're going to begin 
this passage is, it doesn't seem to fit. I'll tell you, I struggled tremendously with this. I kept thinking to myself, why did I choose this passage? Uh, but I chose it, again, because it references creation. And I want us to have a, a two-week extended discussion over this subject of how is it that I have come to know God? Um, that seems like a fairly easy question because we naturally go to, well, Benita told me about Jesus as my Sunday school teacher when I was what? This is a fictitious story. <laughs> but we tend to go to those kinds of things, right? For me, it was Ramona Priest. That was my early Sunday school teacher that you know, taught me the Bible stories and, and at that time I believed. But we tend to go to that. And I think in reality, the Bible has a different answer for us that we need to understand. And it, it's, it's around this concept of the knowability of God, okay? So the term agnostic, people who claim to be agnostic, what does that mean? Well, I know it's not the same as atheism, but I don't think they believe that one kind of, or the other. That, it's not that they don't believe in God, but they don't believe one way or the other. Okay. I mean, I think an atheist so, does not believe in God at all. That right. Atheism is a compound word, two words, atheism, meaning no God. There is no God. That's what an atheist believes. There is no God. What does the Bible say about that person? He's a fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Because the heavens declare the glory of God, the, the actual manifestation of God. Agnostics say, well, there is a God, but we can't know him. The word gnosko is a Greek word in there meaning to know. And so agnostic means, yeah, there's a God, but we can't know him. He, he is not ever going to make himself knowable. In other words, he's not going to step into the world that we live in and reveal himself to us. Well, Consequently, they don't believe in Jesus. Exactly. Consequently, they don't believe in Jesus. There's no point in going to church because church is just the reason or a way, an avenue to know God, right? So an agnostic says, "Don't go. You know, why waste your time going to church? Go to the park, go fishing, go deer hunting, go do whatever, uh, but don't go to church." Uh, they don't believe in the Bible because obviously God would not make Himself known. So again, the only reason I bring that up, if you're talking to somebody and you know in the back of their mind they think of themselves as an agnostic, essentially. You have to be really creative because this means nothing to them. Church means nothing to them. As a matter of fact, the only thing in reality you have is your own testimony, right? That's the one thing that can never be taken is, uh, C.S. Lewis said, the power of a changed life is the one thing that man can never argue about. It is that changed life. So why is it that we want to live godly lives? Why is it that we want to understand the truth and live out that truth? It's because in reality, when everything is said and done, it's the only thing that we have that verifies to others how God has worked in our lives and that change that has happened. Okay, okay. Colossians. Let's read the passage, and uh, then we'll co I'll come back. Going to make some comments, and then uh, we're going to open it up to a lot of discussion. And I am going to start in verse 13. I know I told you 15, but it's important that we start in 13, I think. Um, Structure-wise, I, I always like to, to do this. Colossians was written by whom? Is that right? Proper English? Paul. Paul wrote it. Uh, so it is what we call a circular letter. 
That is, he wrote it to a group of churches in mind. Uh, it started with a single church. That church was at Colossae. Uh, but then the letter got circulated. So it's what we call a general epistle, meaning it's not dealing with a specific problem. It's not, hey, I know you guys got that Galen over there and he's problems. You got to deal with him. You see that in Corinthians. That's a specific letter. This is a more general letter. It's dealing with general topics. And the general topic that is being dealt with here is a group of heretics, people that taught false doctrine called the Gnostics. G-N-O-S-T-I-C-K. That sounds like agnostic. Okay? So this letter is written to a, a group of people who said that uh, the modern day is you can't know God. In their day, they, the Gnostics said, you can know God, but you only know him through special revelation. It's only through, you know, God doing something to your head to where you actually come to know him. Some kind of special revelation, okay? So it's a little bit different than agnosticism. Uh, keep that in mind. But it does deal with this concept of Gnosticism. And notice what Paul says here, verse 13. For he, that is God... God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So notice the first thing that this passage talks about and deals with is this whole idea of the two kingdoms. The dominion of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness, versus the kingdom of light, God's kingdom. Okay, So Paul has set up this, this understanding that in life, you are in one of two places, and that's it. You know the, the old saying, there's two kinds of people in the world? It really is true when it comes to this. There's only two kinds of people, darkness dwellers and light dwellers. You are either walking in darkness, meaning lies, uh, uh, sinfulness, selfishness, or you're walking in light, that is, in the knowledge of God, in the truth of God. Okay, So that's what Paul has set up. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness <clears throat> and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. Verse 15, He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by Him and for Him. Question. What was not created by Jesus? Okay, we will not answer this question now, but uh, come to the next class where we talk about a theology of sin and we'll deal with that. But all things here does mean all things that he created, all things that Genesis 1 refers to. Okay, go ahead. I don't want to jump ahead. That's all right. Mm-hmm. So, just like when we talked about separating light and dark, is, was it that he created the darkness or was it that he created the light which created the dark? There you go. And, and that's what we will talk about in, by creating goodness, remember, what was the repetitive phrase that God says in Genesis 1? He saw everything that he created and it was, it was good. and then you get to day six, after he creates man, he saw everything that he created and it was 
Very good. Notice he doesn't say perfect. It was good. It was very good. It was perfect. He didn't even say that after he created a woman. I'll tell you that right now. You're welcome, fellas. (laughs) So the point is, God creates goodness, and so he delineates good from evil. And then as Galen, I think this was last week you pointed this out, the, the tree, what was the tree called that he told him not to eat from? Knowledge. Knowledge of good and evil. So obviously, God in some way knows what evil is, even though he himself is separated from evil. He knows that it is the opposite of everything that he is. And this tree somehow conferred the ability to understand the difference between that which was good and that which was bad. It is a concept that we call freedom. And God created freedom. God created mankind with the ability to choose, the ability to know, the ability to understand. And so when he took in this, in essence, he says, okay, now I see this is what you created. You created goodness. But I also see what's over there. And that looks kind of appealing. That grass just got green. I know there's a fence there, but the grass just got green. So I'm going to go up to the fence and I'm going to look at the grass in that freedom. So when it says here in Colossians, all things, we have to understand all doesn't necessarily always mean all. It means all that the context allows for. So the things that he created in the first chapter of Genesis that are laid out for us, those are the things that he is referring to. The, the, if you remember, it goes all the way back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what does that refer to? There's no word for universe in Hebrew. So we had to have this phrase, heavens and the earth. So in reality, what all things is referring to here is the universe. This is what he created and what was created for him is everything within the universe. The conceptual things, while there was potentiality there, he didn't necessarily create those things. Does that make sense? It's kind of like he didn't create me, but he created the potentiality for me to be created. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Took a long time, several thousand years, but <clears throat> okay. Uh, let's see. He, verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Verse 19, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. In this passage, uh, we're, we're not going to do what we typically do, which is kind of look at every little thing. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay out an outline for you, and we're going to look at just that last verse, 19. And specifically, where it says that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. We're going to look at that phrase, through him to reconcile all things to himself. The fullness of God resting in Christ, this is one of those passages that we look to when we try to uh, clarify the deity of Christ in the person of Jesus. What do I mean by that? When we, we look at Christ as the pre-incarnate one, that's John 1.1, 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. 
Okay, we got that. That's Christ. But on what we celebrate as Christmas, December 25th, he comes as a baby. He becomes enfleshed. What do we do with him then? See, this is where the Gnostics said, well, he couldn't have come in flesh because everything that dwells in flesh is bad. It's evil. It's nasty. The, the, the fullness of God could not have rested on him. And we call Jesus the God-man, that he is fully God, Colossians 1, and fully man, as we see in throughout the Gospels, that he is flesh. He took on flesh. So here we have a definitive statement where it says God was pleased to have all of the fullness, not part, not a piece, but all of the fullness of God to be present in the man, Jesus. Okay? So when you look at Jesus Christ, the babe in the manger, it's God in flesh. What is it that the angel said he would be called? Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. God is now present with us in the place no different than he was in the uh, uh, in the Old Testament, in the in the temple, in the tabernacle where his glory dwelt there, he was present. His physical presence was there. And in the prophets, we see that that presence left. That presence disappeared. The problem is the Israelites didn't know it. They thought he was still there. Remember, they couldn't go into the Holy of Holies except for one time a year. And so for hundreds of years, they existed thinking, oh yeah, he's just right there behind the curtain. No, he's the babe in the manger. He's the man on the cross, right? So... Uh, the, this passage, one of the first things that it reveals to us is that uh, you go all the way back to verse 15. Here's the first part of the outline. He is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible. He can't be seen. So in order to make himself known, he gives us a representation. Uh, I'm going to steal your little picture here. So the the class that Kathy, uh, or two of the classes that she works with, um, rooted in what's the other instruments. one? Instruments. They use this tree as an image to to depict what it is that they're talking about, which is what happens up here is only evidenced by what's going on below the ground, right? And you know, I try not to get too involved because they mess up the DNA and all that kind of stuff when they get into talking about this. But the point is that as the roots get into the ground and they pull up water and all that kind of stuff, it changes so that the tree, if it's an apple tree, it makes apples and it makes good apples because it is strongly rooted, right? So that becomes an image, a representation of something that is a concept. A concept we can't hold, but that we can hold, right? Jesus becomes the same thing for us. The, the concept of God is difficult for us to understand, but God knows that. So he says, I'm going to give you something that you can hold on to. And that thing that you can hold on to is the image. And it's what we call in, in classic theology, imagio de Dio. It's the image of God. This phrase is repeated about three times in the New Testament uh, to tell us that, that one of the important reasons that Jesus appears is to show us what God is like. Think of the times, <clears throat> you read about this a lot in the Gospel of John, but Jesus says, I'm only doing what my Father tells me to do. I only speak the words my Father tells me to speak. And when we look at that, we should see 
a almost, uh, you know, it's like you're looking through glass. You, you see the image standing in front of it, but you're looking to what's behind the scenes, and that's God. That's God working, okay? So we have verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Uh, secondly, we have uh, verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. The other reason that he came was to be the head of this people, okay? The body, the head of the body, the church. Uh, when God looks at his church, this is important. When God looks at his church, he only sees his church. That doesn't make any sense. Here's what I mean. He doesn't see Christ Church of Orinogo. He doesn't see um, College Heights. He doesn't see, I don't know, Forest City. You pick the, the name of the local. He does not ever see that. He only sees his church. And in seeing his church, he only sees the head of his church, who is his son. The purpose of his church is to bring honor to his son. The last thing, one of the last things, I've got to be careful here, that Jesus prayed for is restore the glory that I had with you when I was in eternity past. We fulfill that prayer of Jesus Christ. We bring glory to him and we restore that glory that he had with the one and only who is God. And whenever we lose sight of that, we're in trouble. Okay? There, there are churches... That you know, uh, I like. I don't watch it anymore, but that show, Deadliest Catch, and they would always show these uh, boats that had run aground, you know, in a storm or whatever, and they're all you know rusted out and skeletonized, and you see these shipwrecks, and they're a reminder of what has happened in the past, right? How many times do you drive in in some place and see an abandoned church building? That's a representation. It's an image of the people who have shipwrecked their faith. Paul, in another book, talks about people who have shipwrecked their faith. Again, that's a discussion for another time. What does that mean? But the point is, they have lost their way. They have lost the purpose that they exist for, and somewhere they, they went a different way, and so now they're just, they're just garbage littering the, the shoreline. In reality, um, it is, it is very important that we understand that, that Jesus Christ is the head of the body. And anything that we do, if it doesn't in some way enhance, bring glory to him, uh, as an individual, I need to rethink what I'm doing. If, if my classes, my teaching does not bring glory to him, bring honor to him, then we need to you know, redo the class. It's a waste of time. Okay? Just remember that. Okay? Then we come to verse 19. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. Now, in language, you have verb tenses that allow us to understand who is doing the action and who is receiving the action. Does anybody teach English in here? You do? Okay. So what do we call those? What do we call, if you're doing the action, what do we call that kind of a verb? It's an action verb. I run, right? Who's doing the running? I am. I run. Um, then we have, 
Then we have the other kind of verb where I'm receiving the action. In other words, I could say, my wife ran me ragged shopping. She didn't really. I'm just using it. It's the only thing I can think of to use this verb ran. Or my wife ran me to the store. What do we call that? I'm not really physically out there running. It's passive, isn't it? It's happening to me. She loaded me. This was very true after my stroke. She would load me up in the car. We would go somewhere because I couldn't drive. And she would take me someplace. So she ran me to get my hair cut. She ran me to the store to get meds, those kinds of things. And literally, I was receiving that action. Notice how this verb is passive. Here's what I mean. Verse 19, God was pleased to have all this fullness dwell in him and through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself, to God, all things. That's passive, isn't it? God is the one that is doing the reconciling and he's doing it through Jesus Christ. What are we doing? Where are you and I in that verse? Okay, we're not. We're the recipients of his work, so we're the direct object. We're recipients. We're at the end of the sentence. We are uh, what is being reconciled. Okay, that would be the direct object. We're passive spectators. It's a fair word. We're spectators. It's kind of like creation, isn't it? We didn't create what is it was created for us right he created all things for himself he reconciled all things to god through himself do you see that that is critically important uh, trust me it'll make sense when we get to the end so i want to give you five terms um I, and I have to admit, I, I stole this from somebody. It was so good. I didn't come up with this myself. Five terms that are used to summarize salvation. In, these are used in the Bible, but this was so good, I thought I cannot not pass this on. So the first term that is used to summarize our salvation is the term justification. Justification. Okay? In justification, the sinner stands before God... As the accused, and God declares them righteous. Okay? It is a legal declaration. In justification, the sinner stands before God as the accused and is declared righteous. Okay? My parents were teaching me this concept, the little phrase, just as mm-hmm. if I, goes on with justification. Just, just as, as just if I'd never sinned. Yep. Yep. So that's justification. The second term, redemption. In redemption, the sinner stands before God as a slave and is granted freedom by the ransom that is paid through Christ. Okay? Redemption. In redemption, we stand before God as a slave and we are granted freedom by the ransom that is paid. The third term is forgiveness. In forgiveness, the the sinner stands before God as a debtor. We owe him something. Right? And the debt, having been paid, is forgotten. In forgiveness, we stand before God as somebody who owes and we can't pay the debt. 
And the debt is paid for us, and then the debt is forgotten. Fourth, reconciliation, the term that we're looking at here in Colossians. And reconciliation, the sinner stands before God as an enemy and becomes a friend, and peace with God is made. In reconciliation, we are the enemy of God. We are opposed to Him, and He makes friends with us. Fifthly, sonship or adoption. In sonship, the sinner stands before God as a stranger and is made a son. We're foreigners, we're aliens, we're brought near. Okay, Think of that imagery in the New Testament. So you have these five uh, words, justification, redemption, forgiveness, reconciliation, sonship. In justification, again, we stand before God as the accused and we are declared righteous. In redemption... We stand before God as the slave, and we are declared free. In forgiveness, we stand before God as the debtor, and the debt, having been paid, is forgotten. Fourth, reconciliation, we stand before God as the enemy and become a friend. And finally, sonship, we stand before God as a stranger, and we are made a son. Now, let me summarize that for you a different way, and this is the part that I really like. We stood before God as the accused. He declared us righteous. We stood before God as a slave. He granted us freedom. We stood before God as a debtor, and he forgot our debt. We stood before God as an enemy, and he made us a friend. We stood before God as a uh, stranger, and he called us a son. Forgiveness deals with the fruit. Redemption deals with the root. Think about that. Forgiveness deals with the sin in our lives and it deals with the fruit. Redemption deals with the root of our problem and the fact that we are a slave to sin. We are in the kingdom of darkness. We can't escape it on our own and he comes in and rescues us. Deals with the root. Okay, It deals with the condition of our nature. As slaves to sin, he frees us. We're no longer slaves to sin. Reconciliation deals with our condition. We're an enemy of God. He makes us a friend. And sonship deals with our position. We're a stranger. We're a foreigner. We're we're not family. And He makes us family. Fruit, root, uh, condition, position. If you could... Learn that concept and meditate on those concepts, you would become an expert in what it means to be saved. Because if you wrap all those together, you get the, con- the condition of justification. You get the idea that we are justified. So they are like facets on a diamond. You're, you're turning the diamond and looking at it from different perspectives. You're looking at the fruit. How does God deal with our sin? He forgives us. How does God deal with the root of who we are? The fact that we are enslaved to sin. He redeems us. How does God deal with the fact that we are his enemies? That we are far off? He reconciles us. And then finally he makes us sons. Right? Make sense? You will get all of those notes. Again, once we're all done, I'm going to give you those. Uh, And I don't include who I stole that from. I stole it from... uh, uh, I heard it in a John MacArthur sermon, but uh, it actually came from Warren Wearsby, I believe. 
is, was the original source. The important essential nature that we are looking at here is what we call the freedom or the will of God. The fact that God created us, watched us fall, and said, I'm going to step in and redeem that. I'm going to make it right. It's not good. It's not very good. It's not how I made it. And I'm not even going to restore it to good. I'm going to make it perfect. I'm going to make it better than it was originally. I'm going to remove the tendency for sinfulness. Okay? Now, I want you just to think about all those passages we've read in... If you want to uh, write these down, you can look at them. Ephesians 1, 3 to 7. 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. And Titus 1, 1 to 3. Ephesians 1, Timothy 1, 2 Timothy 1, Titus 1. Uh, if you look at you'll you'll find it very very quickly, but those are the passages where we read where it talked about that God planned our salvation before the foundation of the world, before he even you know threw down the cornerstone. Before Genesis 1:1, he planned to save us. So let's come back to my original question. How is it that you know God? How is it that you know God? Nobody's answering. I must not have done a very good job. He revealed himself. He made himself known. He stepped into our world. He redeemed us. He reconciled us. Remember that passive verb tense that's used there. He did it. Okay? Why does this have implication? It has implication for Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Here's why I mean why I say that. Let's say on Wednesday you're coming to church, you're going to go to Kathy's class, and you're in an accident, and all of a sudden you blurt out a curse word because your your nature comes out, and you die in the process. Are you going to hell? Why not? Okay. This is going to the next class that we will talk about, but do we ever pay for our sin? Our sin has been paid for. Our sin has been paid for. You see, when we believe in Jesus, it's not just to get out of hell. It's not just to get out of free card, get out of jail free card. It is to be truly changed, to be transformed, to be put back the way that we were intended to be put back in the garden, but not even like that, better. A.W. Tozer, my, my favorite author, has uh, a saying, and I remind myself of it often. He says this, it will take us all of eternity to learn to live without sin. We have become so accustomed to living with sin in our lives that we don't realize how we do that. We cope, right? We go through life coping. It's going to take us all of eternity. Think about that for a moment. All of eternity. That never ends. 
to learn to live without the presence of sin in our lives. That is the salvation that God has brought us to. That is why Jesus stepped into the world. He wanted to recreate and make perfect his creation. The gift that he will ultimately give to his son is so precious, so perfect. But we don't see ourselves like that, do we? How does God see you? Through Jesus. Through Jesus. He sees you as you will be, not as you are. Think about that this week. As you go through life and you mess up, you will mess up. I guarantee you. We all do. God looks upon you and he sees you as you will be, not as you are. If that doesn't give you hope, if that doesn't give you the motivation to say, why should I listen? Why should I learn? Why should I trust more? Why should I reject the lies? Then there is nothing that will ever cause you to listen to that. Now there's a a deeper truth here that we're not going to get into. It's that whole concept of, well, where, where, does, where does man's free will come into all this? We're not going to talk about that. That's a, that's a discussion for another day. The thing that I want you to take away from this is this whole concept that God has done it. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he didn't mean it's almost done or it's sort of done or my part's done. He meant it's done. It's finished. Finito. Right? Done. See, I can speak Spanish. <laughs> it's done. It's, it is completed in its fullness. That is the Savior that we trust in. And it all comes all the way back to the fact that he created and he saw his creation through all the way. When, when God, before the foundation of the world, said, this is what I'm going to do, because of his eternality it was done even though it takes in our framework thousands of years to play out it was done think about that that'll just blow your socks off you know the fact that that god in his eternality said i'm going to create and then i'm going to deliver and i'm going to bring home he did it now did Jesus still have to come? Did Jesus still have to die? Of course, all of those things had to happen. But in the mind of God, once it was set in motion, it was as if it was done. And that is the concept that we call the free will of God, the sovereignty of God, that that freedom that he has, that he is not bound by time or space or anything else. When he says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. Okay. Your turn. What is it? We talked about how is it that you have come to know God. Let's talk about your, we kind of referenced this to your unbelieving friends. Why is it that they don't know God? Why is it that they don't know God? The same opportunity has been presented to them as is to us. So why don't they know? I don't know if it's that they don't know him. Or if they're choosing not to acknowledge him, because the fact that all creation declares the glory of God, if that's true, then no one is exempt from knowing God. And Mm -hmm. so God has revealed himself to every single one of us. We all know God, but not everyone has chosen to Mm -hmm. 
see that. Mm-hmm. They've got blinders on of their own accord, mm-hmm. not because I don't. Well, there again, I'm not God. Mm-hmm. I can't. I can't think like God. God does have the ability or the capability to not reveal Himself to others, but I. Mm. <laughs> I have a friend that lost a son, and she asked me one time, um, caught me off guard, but um, she and I went to play the golf tournament, and she said she'd lost a son, and she said, could God have saved my son? And of course, my answer was yes, well, why didn't he? Mm-hmm. Sometimes God allows things to happen, we don't know why. And she said, I was very bitter and angry. And she, at the time, she still was. This has been about four years ago. And she said, you know, I'm still mad at him. Mm-hmm. I'm mad. And I, you know, she said, I had a preacher come by and lost my son and wanted to pray me. She said, no way. You know, and at that point, I was like, I can't tell you how you feel because I don't, I wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. And then about two years ago, three years after we visited, she called me one day and she, she had been mad at me for quite some time because I kept sending her texts, scripture, and prayers and stuff, and she wouldn't reply or answer me. And then she called me one day and said, come go play golf with me. And I was like, it's too windy and too cold. But something kept telling me, go play with her. And she told me, she said, I almost died. Hmm. I'm like, what? And she goes, I literally locked myself in the house on the couch for a month, and I tried to commit suicide and I almost died. And she said... But something kept reminding me of what you said. And she said, God was there with me. I said, he never left you, Terry. You mm-hmm. did not allow him. You know, you didn't receive what he was doing mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. And she said, I didn't remember you saying that to me. And it was just like, okay, wow. You know, hey, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> At one point in time in my life. But who knows? It, that's like what she said. You just you just know. You just mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. People just don't allow themselves to... Okay. For him to work. Thurman? The willingness of asking, seeking, and knocking. Mm-hmm. And the desire has to be there. Yeah. He's not going to force himself, so we have to take that initiative. Yeah. But he can do, he'll do the rest. But our, we have to be in tune with him at least. Say, I know you enough that I want to be like mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Mark made a statement in his sermon last week that has gone over and over in my head this week too. We are all God's creation, but we are not all God's children. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I've mauled over and over and over. And the difference between the two is the choice that we make. Okay. Any other thoughts? It's sort of like what's been rumbling around my head, thinking around enough. I can't remember the verse where Paul talks about this present suffering and how mm-hmm. he doesn't feel like that's anything. He counts it as like nothing compared to the glory that's going to come. And our minds that cannot comprehend perfection and heaven and eternity with him and how awesome that's going to be, all we see is suffering and the wickedness and the evil around us. And there are those times when we think, you know, um, why am I suffering then? If God's already paid my consequences, well, he paid the price, we still suffer those consequences of the agony and the world and the, the pains of this evil world. And sometimes those things hurt really bad. And God doesn't take all of those away. 
but it still says that he is not slow about keeping his promise, but he's patient, not wishing for any to perish. So in his sovereignty, he looks at the suffering that we have, and he knows that even though it's hard to bear, mm -hmm. it's, it's nothing compared to what it's going to be. And so it's worth allowing some of that suffering to continue because he knows who can be saved if we wait. Let me uh, just because of time, I'm going to wrap up here. I, I wanted to spend a lot more time, but as usual, I gab too much. I want to take last week and this week and kind of wrap everything up into a, a summation if I can. Um, in reality, the reason that our unsaved loved ones don't know God is because they have embraced the lie. Is it not? Romans 1? They have embraced the lie. And what is the fundamental lie that has been embraced? It's that this world is all that there is. Why does creation matter? Because we have to understand that there is a creator and that creator supersedes everything that is. Why is it that we look at when our child dies and we say, could God have healed him? I guarantee you that child's fine right now. That child is fully healed. Does it hurt us? Is it pain us? Absolutely. Why is it that we suffer with various diseases and those kinds of things? Well, the Bible tells us that those things come to refine us, to make us trust more. And here's what I want to tell you. There, there is a verse in... Um, I think it's in Second Corinthians, if I remember right. But it's when Paul is talking about why his ministry is so important, and he, and he makes this statement. He says, because we know the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. It's because we have come to understand the wrath of God that rests on all of mankind. We have understood that he is justified in his rejection of them. He is justified in his abandonment of them. We, and he uses the word persuade, we try to convince them of the truth. The goal that you and I have is to try and convince the people around us of the truth. That there is more to this life than this life. Yeah? That there is more than what our eyes can see and what our hands can touch and our mouths can taste. There is so much more. And if we can get them to embrace that, the step towards moving towards God is an easy one. Because the moment you acknowledge that there's more than just this, well, then I want to know the more. And guess what? He's made himself no. That's easy, right? I said, uh, I want to live right because I want to make sure I know that I get to see what he's talking about. Because mm -hmm. even if, you know, if, if there isn't something more, how will I know if I'm not? Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah. So I leave you with that. Remember that as you look to your unsaved friends, they are not bad people. They are, uh, I have to look back at my cheat notes here. They are the slave. They are the debtor. They are the enemy. They are the accused. And it's our job to convince them, hey, it's been taken care of. Let me introduce you to the one 
who has done that. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, just the opportunity to learn about you, to, to be challenged by you. God, you are a, a, an awesome God, a, a never-ending presence in our lives. And, and God, you are immense. Um, you are eternal. And God, it is uh, just a pleasure to be able to worship you. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for choosing to make known to us the path of your salvation. God, I pray that you will continue to open our eyes to the truth. Uh, Make us better um, disciples. Make us better people who understand you and who want to follow in your footsteps to, to become like Jesus, willing to sacrifice our own selves so that others might know. God, we pray these things in the name of Jesus that you might bring glory to him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.